Now, what I'm about to read you is a true story. Once upon a time, there was a little girl. She was never really wanted by her mom and dad. Her dad got drunk on the day she was born. He told her many times, especially when he was angry, that he wanted a boy or no child at all, but not her. She could never seem to do anything right. She was seldom ever hugged or told that she was loved. When she misbehaved, she was yelled at and rejected. She began to feel bad about herself. Maybe it was her fault. Maybe she was defective. Maybe it would have been better if she'd never been born. When she became a teenager, she ran away from home. She walked the streets, worked as a waitress, let men use her, got pregnant, had an abortion. One time, she even got so desperate that she called home. Her dad just said that she'd been bad news from the day that she'd been born. They found her hanging with a white bed sheet around her neck. There was a note on the ground, and this is what it said. To mom and dad, I never did develop into a real person. There was nothing of lasting worth or value to my life. I am a bomb of frustration and should never marry or have children It's best to defuse the bomb harmlessly now. Simply cremate me as Jane Doe, end of quote. Now, folks, this girl's story is not unique, and tragically, it's not even uncommon in our world. You realize that every single minute, every single day of the year, somebody in America attempts suicide, and that every day, 70 of them succeed? That in the United States of America, there are 24% more deaths by suicide than by murder. That in Los Angeles, more people kill themselves than die in automobile accidents. That suicide is the number nine cause of death overall in America. But among people under the age of 30, it's number three. And among teenagers, it's number two. And that four out of five people who succeed in killing themselves have tried before. Now, what does that tell us, those statistics? Well, it tells me that our world is teeming with people who feel unworthy, unwanted, unlovely, and unloved. And many of us here, I would suspect, have had to grapple with some of those feelings growing up. Maybe some of us even grapple with them now. Is there a solution to the problem? Well, sure. If there weren't, I wouldn't be talking to you about it, would I? Of course there's a solution. And the solution is the unconditional love that Jesus Christ offers you and me and everybody else in this world. A love that can heal, a love that can restore, a love that can take the pain and take it away. And I want to talk to you about that today and and challenge your heart and my heart to really be open to what God wants to do in our lives today. Here, let's look together beginning at verse 1 in Mark chapter 14, because this is a central part of this passage. Mark 14. Now the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But they said, not during the feast. We can't do it then because there'll be a riot. Let me remind you that we are now in the last week of Jesus's earthly life. And we're on Wednesday now. He's going to be crucified on Friday. So we're two days away from Jesus being arrested and killed. And the Bible tells us that on this Wednesday, 
Verse 3, while he was in Bethany, reclining at the table of the home of a man named Simon the leper, a woman also came to that party. Bethany is a little tiny town a mile and a half east of Jerusalem. And we know from Matthew 21 that during this last week of his life, Jesus was making his headquarters in Bethany. He would stay in Bethany and during the day he'd take the short journey over the Mount of Olives and into the city of Jerusalem, do what he had to do and go back to Bethany to spend the night. He was staying at the house of three friends, a guy named Lazarus, whom he had incidentally raised from the dead, and his two sisters named Mary and Martha. Right, okay. Now, we know from John chapter 12 that while he was in Bethany on Wednesday night, there was a party, a dinner that was given in Jesus' honor. This is the dinner. Mark 14 gives us a little more detail. And it tells us that the dinner was held at the home of a man named Simon the leper. Now, I have a question for you. Why do you think they called him Simon the leper? What do you think? Because he had leprosy. Good Good, good. See, y'all are ready for seminary already. Look at this. This is great. Okay. Now, the problem is, though, he didn't have leprosy anymore because you were not allowed by Jewish law to get near anybody with active leprosy. They were shunned. They were rejected. They were outcasts. But here, if this party is happening in Simon's house, he obviously doesn't have any active leprosy anymore. What do you think happened to him? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I would sure say if I had to venture a guess that probably a good guess would be that he was one of the people whom Jesus met. He was one of the people to to whom Jesus opened his arms. He was one of the people whom Jesus accepted when no one else would accept him. One of the people whom Jesus loved when no one else would love him and Jesus healed him of his leprosy. I think that's a pretty good guess. And so Simon's happy to make his house available and into Simon's house comes a woman. And the Bible says, verse 3, that the woman had an alabaster jar full of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, and she broke the jar and poured the perfume on Jesus' head. Now, this woman had a very unique item with her. It was an alabaster jar full of very expensive nard. Nard was a highly aromatic fragrance that had to be imported from India. And it was so valuable that, look what it says in verse 5, it says when the disciples were complaining about what she was doing, they said, why this could have been sold for more than a year's wages. That's a lot of money. So how much would that be in today's dollars, Lon? Well, I don't know. Depends who you are. If you're a GS-14, $55,000, give or take. If you're President Clinton, $250,000. If you're Colin Powell, depends how many books you sell, and we'll know. But hey, that's a lot of money. How many of you, don't raise your hand, how many of you right now have the equivalent of one year's worth of your salary in your liquid savings account? I'm not talking about retirement. I'm talking about you go go down to the bank tomorrow and you could pull out the equivalent of a year's worth of salary you have it sitting in your savings account. I wouldn't think very many of us have that much money around, would you? I don't. Most of us live from paycheck to paycheck, huh? This woman had something that was worth a whole year's salary sitting on the shelf at home. And you say, well, Lon, where did she get something? I mean, Bethany's a tiny little poor town. Where in the world does a woman get that something worth that much money? Well, it's a good question. Don't know. 
But again, if I had a guess to venture, I would guess that this woman had never amassed enough money herself to go buy it. I suspect it was probably an heirloom, probably something that had been owned by her grandmother or her great-grandmother or her great-great-grandmother that had been passed down in the family for years. And I think it's fair to say, both because of the monetary value and, if I'm right, the sentimental value, that this flask of oil certainly was the most valuable possession, humanly speaking, that this woman owned. I think that's fair. And probably something the woman was holding on to as a hedge against the future in case she got sick, in case something happened, she knew she could sell it and live off the money for a long time. She brought it and gave it to Jesus. Look at verse 4. And some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? Why, we could have sold this for more than a year's wages and the money could have been given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. They said, you stupid woman, what are you doing? Jesus said, leave her alone. Leave this woman alone. Why are you guys bothering her? Back off, guys. She's done a beautiful thing. The poor you'll always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. If that's your real motive, gentlemen, you can help the poor anytime you want. But, he said, you won't always have me. And she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial, which, by the way, is only two days away. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached, throughout the world, what this woman has done will be told also in memory of her. Jesus rebuked his disciples and said, guys, she wasn't wasting. They said, she's wasting all this. He said, no, 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 you guys got it all wrong. She's not wasting, she's worshiping. There's a difference. She's worshiping. And friends, worship is whenever we do something that sends the message to God, God, you are worth more. That's what worship is. God, you are worth more. And this woman was sending a message and saying, Jesus, I want you to understand you are worth more to me than my most cherished possession. You're worth more to me than something my great-great-grandmother owned. You're worth more to me than my retirement account and the insurance policy I've been holding on to as a hedge against disaster. You're worth more than my earthly security. You're worth more to me, God, than anything. Is it any wonder Jesus was impressed with the gift? Now that's the end of our passage, but you know we have a question, don't you? You've been waiting for this. I know. And what's our question? So what, what, Lon? What difference does this make to my life? Well, I'm going to tell you. I want to show you something. What I've got here is two baseballs. But they're just not any baseball. They both have some writing on it. And I want to tell you about these baseballs. This first one says this. First high school hit, April 23rd, 1993. This is the ball that my oldest son, Jamie, got his first high school hit in baseball. And after he hit it, I have looked more polished and more under control in my life than I looked trying to get a hold of this baseball. But I went and got a hold of this baseball and saved it. My son was embarrassed. He thinks I'm an idiot. He thinks this is corny, but in 25 years, he's going to kiss my feet that I got this baseball for him. Right? Now, I wrote everything on the ball. You know, I wrote down where he hit the ball, what the score was, and everything like that, and saved it, and I got it. 
Now, here's another ball that's worth a lot to me. This is a little more recent. And let me read you. It says, 1995 AAA Orioles. That was a team I coached with my youngest son. 16-0 undefeated season ball. This is the ball from the game. The very last game, we went into extra innings and won the game to finish the season undefeated. Man, I ran out on the field and scarfed this ball up before anything could happen to it. And I've got this in my youngest son's room. Now, these balls are very valuable to me. You say, Lon, if we were to come up and say, would you give us one of those balls? What would you say? I would say, in your dreams, you know, get real. You want onions with that? There's no way you'll get these balls. These balls are not going to you for two reasons. One, they're mine. And two, they mean a lot to me. These are so valuable to me. Now, I'll give you another baseball. Want a baseball? I'll give you a baseball. I got lots of baseballs, but you can't get these. Why? Because they're worth too much to me. Now, I was thinking about that on the night when Cal Ripken tied the record for most consecutive games. I didn't go to that game. I went to the next one. But I was home that night. And after the game was over, if you remember, they had this huge ceremony out on the field where they sat him down and they brought him all these gifts out and everything. Now, I know it was late. It was around midnight. But us obsessive sports people stay up and watch this stuff. And so I'm laying in bed watching this, you know, and they got all these people going out. You know, Hank Aaron's there going out and presenting him something and Frank Robinson and Brooks Robinson and all these people, the president of the American League. And I'm like, wow. And then they introduce this guy named Jim Gott. He's going to go out and make a presentation. And I was laying there and I remember saying out loud, Jim Gott? Who is Jim Gott? I mean, we're talking Hank Aaron, Frank Robinson, Jim Gott? thought, all right, well, he must be some Oriole flunky or something going out there. I don't know. So anyway, he walks out. He's got this suit on. He looks like an athlete type. And he takes the microphone, and here's what he says. He says, Cal, he said, on the day your streak began, May the 30th, 1982, he said, I was the pitcher in the game who defeated the Orioles that night. He said, now it also happened to be that night my very first major league victory. And he said, for the last 13 years, I've had the game ball from that game. And he reached in his pocket and he pulls this ball out. And he said, but tonight I want to take this game ball from the very first night of your streak and I want you to have it. Well, I'm a wreck by now. I'm just, I'm laying in bed going, oh, and I'm trying not to wake everybody up in the house. You know, I'm going, oh, dude. I mean, I know what that, hey, listen, guys, have you ever won a major league victory? Do you know what a guy has to go through to become a major league pitcher? Do you understand all the minor leagues, all the $2 hamburgers, all the cheap hotels that these people have to put up with to ever get to the major leagues and then to get there and win your very first victory? Do you understand what that ball meant to this guy? For 13 years, he's been holding on to it. Now he's going to give it away. And Cal Ripken said in USA Today the next morning, he said, to be honest with you, I didn't want to take the ball. The meaning of baseball to me is that we all carve out our moments. And one of his moments was his first big league win. I told him, you don't have to do this. This is your memory. I don't want your ball. But he insisted. And Cal said, I know how much that ball meant to him. And that makes it probably the most special gift I was given the entire evening. Wow. You know, they gave him some pretty expensive stuff that night. I mean, stuff that cost thousands of dollars. And then to say that a $5 baseball is the most special gift you got the whole night. 
Why would you say something like that? Well, I'll bet you if you think back on the most special gift you've ever been given in your life, it's probably not the most expensive gift anybody ever gave you, but it's probably the most special because of what it meant to the person who gave it to you. And see, that was true of Cal. And you know what? This lady came in, friends, and she gave Jesus the most meaningful thing she owned in the whole world. Now, why would she do that? Why would anybody do that? Well, the only thing that I know is that the only time you're willing to give away something that's valuable is when you're going to give it away to somebody or something more valuable. And so the real question is, what had Jesus done for this woman that had made him more valuable to her than anything that she owned? I'll tell you what he did. It was the same thing that he did for Simon the leper. It was the same thing he did for Lazarus. It was the same thing he did for Zacchaeus, who probably was at the party. It's the same thing he did for the man who was born blind and for Peter and James and for Mary Magdalene and Mary and Martha. It was the same things he did for Matthew and every man, woman, and child who would let him do it for him. What Jesus did for these people is he opened his arms wide and he offered them something that the world would not offer them, that the world could not offer them, that the world still can't offer anybody. And that is he offered them a supernatural love, an unconditional love, an unconditional acceptance, a love and an acceptance that restores worth and value and dignity and meaning to people's lives, a love that rebuilds and redeems and repairs and renews people's lives, a love that was willing to go to the cross and die for people when people didn't even want him to, when people were spurning his love, a love that always has its arms open to welcome you back like the prodigal son's father, no matter how far away you've gone or how long you've been away. A love that's not based on performance, a love that heals broken lives, a love that there's no way There's no way that you can do anything to cause it to diminish at all. See, we like to say around here, God loves you for no good reason. And that's true. There's not a single good reason why God should love you or me. Not one thing you and I have ever done to earn it or deserve it. But God loves us anyway. And he loves us unconditionally. And that's what he'd done for this woman. That's what he'd done for Simon the leper. That's what he'd done for all these people. And friends... Jesus offers that same kind of love to you, to me, to everybody in our world, to people who've known conditional love, to people who've known performance-based love, to people who have only been loved and accepted and valued when they perform right. They've seen this demean their self-worth. They've seen it rob them of their self-esteem. They've seen it take all the joy out of living and turn them into dysfunctional disaster zones. To people who feel unworthy, unwanted, unloved, and unlovely, Jesus says, Come to me, come to me, and I will love you back to health. I'll love you back to health. You know, I grew up in a Jewish home. And of course, when you grow up in a Jewish home, you grow up with a Jewish mother. They come in Jewish homes. That's the way it works. So, you know, there's some great Jewish mother jokes. I like this one. There's these three moms sitting around a restaurant talking, and they're all bragging about their sons and how great their sons are. And one mother says, oh, she says, I got the best son in the whole world. She said, my son, even though he lives there all the way across the country, you know, he calls me every single week on the telephone, never fails, ask me how I'm doing. Greatest son in the world. Second woman says, ah, ridiculous. She said, my son's much better than that. You know what my son does? My son sends me flowers every week. 
with nice little notes on it that say, Mom, I love you. Mom, you're the greatest. Mom, thanks for everything you ever did for me. Beautiful flowers on my doorstep when I get home from work. The third mother, who was a Jewish mother, said, Ah, she said, neither one of you have the right kind of son. Neither one of you can compare with my son. You know what my son does? She said, my son goes to see his psychiatrist three times a week, and all he ever talks about is me. That's the way it really works in those homes, friends. You know what my mother used to do when I didn't perform right? When I would do something she didn't want me to do to try to manipulate me into doing the way she wanted it done, she would stop talking to me. She would just put up a wall. It would just feel like a big old stone wall, like the Berlin Wall. And she would just cut me right off. She wouldn't speak to me. She wouldn't look at me. She wouldn't interact with me for days, sometimes even a week. And if she had anything she wanted to say to me, she'd say it through my younger brother. She'd say, Brian, come here. I got a message for your older brother. Tell him, and she'd give him the message. And that's how it would go on for days. And if I would come up and ask her something or try to talk to her, it was like I didn't even exist. And if I asked her something that she absolutely had to answer, she'd call my brother in from wherever he was, tell him the answer to tell me. She wouldn't even look at me. And she would do this for days at a time. Now, I wasn't an adult, you know, who could say to her, hey, you need to get your act together, woman. I mean, I was just a little tiny kid when this was happening. Say, golly, Lon, no wonder you're such a sick person. Well, all right, I can accept that. I am a sick person. And this makes people sick people. And you're right. And you know what? There's a whole lot of other sick people in the world, just like me, who grew up in homes where the only time you were loved, the only time you were treated right, the only time you were valued and accepted is when you performed right. The problem with that system, friends, is nobody can ever perform right enough. You can't do it. And that produces wounded people with pain that is so real and so deep that there's no therapist that can get it out. There's no medicine that can get it out. There's no scalpel that can get it out. But I'll tell you something, you can get it out. Any wholeness that you see in me today, any healing you see in me today, now people debate how much of that's really there. And I admit it's open to question, but whatever's there has been the result over the last 25 years of letting Jesus Christ love me unconditionally. And I had a lady come up after one of the other services and say, Lon, tell me exactly how you get better, how you get healed. And the answer is, I don't know, but I don't care. I don't know how it works. I'm just telling you, having been loved by Jesus Christ for 25 years unconditionally, I'm a better, more whole, more healthy human being. And I don't know how it happened, but it happens. And Jesus will do the same for you. That's why I understand why this woman was sticking to him like glue. I understand why this woman would give him anything, anything that she had. If Jesus asked me for these baseballs, I'd give them to him. I wouldn't give them to you, but I'd give them to him. I'd give them to him. And I wouldn't bat an eye because of what he's done in my life. A couple of years ago, there's a group here in town, a little business, that brings Japanese business people over, young, upwardly mobile Japanese businessmen and women, and they give them a crash course in America. They tell them about American culture. It's about a three- or four-week course, and it costs a fortune in Japanese. But they send these business people over. So they called us a couple of years ago. We had a lady who worked there as a secretary. And they called us, and they said, we need a church. You know, we do two or three days of religion in America with these folks. We'd like to know if there's a church or a pastor who'll come talk to them. I said, hey, I'll do it. 
So every couple of months, they bring a group here. Usually it's about a dozen Japanese folks. And I always ask them, for how many of you is this the first time you've ever been in an American church? And 98% raise their hand. They've never been in a church before in their life. Never met a pastor before. And I show them around, take them downstairs. We go in the conference room. I talk to them a little bit about the Bible, give them my personal story, give them a four spiritual laws in Japanese before they leave. Hey, listen, I'm just not interested in cross-cultural exchange here. I'm interested in sharing with these people what Jesus Christ is offering them. That's the only reason I do this, but that's worth it because this is probably a message these folks would never hear anywhere else. So they were here Thursday and we were sitting in the room here And one of the guys who was over here, one of these Japanese businessmen, had been to Catholic school in Japan. He knew a lot about the Bible. So he raised his hand, and here's what he asked me. He said, you know, I look around this auditorium here. It's a little broken English, but I got it. And he said, I don't see any crosses. I don't see any symbols. I don't see any statues. I don't see any icons. I don't see any place to do the sacraments. And he said, excuse me for asking, but he said, so what do you really offer people at this church as means of grace? If you don't offer them statues, crosses, icons, sacraments, what do you offer people here? Oh, that's a good question. I like that question. I don't even have to make my own introduction with that question. This is great. And so I answered him. And here's what I said. And I hope you'll know the answer I gave him. I said, hey, look. We offer people here what the Bible offers people. The Bible doesn't offer people statues, crosses, sacraments, icons, symbols. The Bible offers people a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. A relationship where we are loved and we are valued unconditionally. The Bible doesn't offer people a performance system. That's religion. Religion is a bunch of rules and regulations that let you work your way to God. We don't offer people religion here. We offer people a personal relationship with a God who loves them and accepts them unconditionally. They don't have to perform to be loved. That's what we offer people. That's what God's offering people. That's what God's offering you. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you've never opened your heart in a personal way and let Jesus Christ in to become part of your life, I want to challenge you today. Why don't you stop struggling? Why don't you stop trying to gut it out? Why don't you let Jesus Christ come in and bring some healing to your life by loving you? You know, there are many of us here who've already opened our life to Christ in a real and personal way. But you know, the tragic thing I find about so many Christians is that so many Christians are still on performance trips with God. They're still obsessed with performing Christian deeds instead of just experiencing God's love. Friends, you don't have to perform even as a Christian for God to love you. Have you figured this out yet? And the day you believe that will be the day that there is a freedom that comes into your life and a joy that comes into your life like you've never experienced before when you finally believe that you don't have to perform for God to love you. You can't perform enough for him to love you one ounce more and you can't perform badly enough for him to love you one ounce less. It has nothing to do with your performance. If it did, Jesus wouldn't have come and died for you in the first place. We weren't performing real good then. He loves us for no good reason. But he loves us. We have one lady who comes here and she's a, you know, a shrink. And she got all her degrees and she does all, you know. She really enjoys psychoanalyzing me. I must be an interesting case. I don't know. And sometimes she'll come up to me in the foyer or whatever and put her arm around me and she'll kind of give me a little bit of analysis. 
Now, a little of that goes a long way. You understand what I'm saying? Particularly when I didn't ask for it, and I don't particularly want it. But she came up to me one time out in the foyer, this a few years ago, and here's what she said to me. She said, Lon, she said, I got some advice for you. She said, here at McLean Bible Church, you need to stop trying to perform in order for us to like you. You just need to relax and let us here at this church love you. Oh, well, thank you very much. You know, who asked for you? But I mean, it was good advice. And from my point of view, it was great advice because it was free. I didn't pay $150 an hour for this advice. So that made it better advice. You understand? But the woman was right. See, I've never been loved that way. And the idea of just relaxing and letting people love you, this is a new concept to me. And over the years, as I've reflected on that and said, you know, this woman's right. And as I've been able to appreciate the unconditional love of God enough to start relaxing and not trying to have to earn people's love, you know what? It's a whole lot nicer way to live. It's a whole lot healthier way to live. And what you find out is when you know God loves you unconditionally, you can let down the barriers and take your chances with people. Man, I'll tell you, the woman gave me good advice, and I'd like to turn her advice around and give the same advice to you in your relationship with God. Stop trying to perform. God doesn't want you to perform. You don't have to earn his love. You can't earn it anyway. He loves you because he loves you. If it doesn't make sense, I'm sorry, but he loves you because he loves you. And all he wants you to do is relax and enjoy him loving you. Just accept being accepted. That's all he wants you to do. And he will bring healing to your pain. And he'll bring healing to your woundedness. And I can't explain to you how, but I'm telling you he will. 25 years later, I'm here to tell you he will. If you'll just let him love you. That's the message we have for the world. That's the message we have for folks out there who are trying so hard to earn their way into God's good graces. Our message is you don't have to earn it. You've already got it. You just got to accept it. God's way. Well, I hope God will do a work in your life and in your heart based on what we've shared. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, our world is full of wounded people who've been damaged by performance-based love, conditional love. We've got folks here who were loved that way by their parents folks who were loved that way by an ex-wife or an ex-husband, folks who were loved that way by a former best friend or boyfriend or girlfriend. And God, those wounds, as you know, are very deep. No doctor, no drug, no therapist, and no scalpel can ever get them out. But I'm so grateful that there's something that will heal those wounds And extract that pain. And that's the unconditional love that you offer each one of us through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray for folks here today who aren't yet Christians, that that they would be willing to stop gutting it out themselves and simply invite you into their life to love them to health. For those of us who are Christians... I pray, Father, you would take what we've talked about this morning out of our head where we all believe it and so convince our heart that this is true, that we would be willing to let down the barriers in our life and let you in so that you can love us to healing. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that there's a place we can take our pain, a place we can take our wounded hearts, 
place where there is a balm in Gilead that heals the sin-sick soul. Lord, help us to reach out and experience that with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.